0: This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised.
1: True North True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and tsleil nations. These days it's so easy to binge all of your favorite content to spend hours upon hours immersed in fictional worlds. Maybe you take a moment during your day to imagine saving the world from impending doom like Wonder Woman. Perhaps you fantasize about leading your people into a new future like Black Panther. Or maybe you just try to figure out which character you'd be in the office. It's fun to daydream. It's fun to escape. But what happens when someone fantasizes about being the villain? And what happens when dark and twisted fantasies turn into reality? This is the murder of John Johnny Altinger. And this is True North True Crime.
0: And welcome to True North, True Crime, Episode 7. As usual, we want to thank all of you for supporting our show. We actually are kind of celebrating this week as the podcast passed 20,000 downloads on Podbean. Uh, Now we know this isn't a huge deal compared to, you know, other big true crime podcasts, but for us, this is a pretty big deal.
1: Yeah, the podcast was a dream project for us for many years, so finally getting it produced this year and being able to See that we're connecting with audiences means the world to us. So honestly, from both of us, thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: If you haven't already, give us a follow on social media at Pod. We post updates. Or if you want to help out our podcast, those five-star reviews on Apple are great for visibility.
1: Or just tell a friend, as word of mouth is the best marketing.
0: So tonight we're going to be talking about a murder and an attempted murder that took place in 2008 in Edmonton, Alberta. This series of events are often referred to in the media as the Dexter Killer, named after the famous Showtime television series, Dexter.
1: So one of our goals with the podcast is to be victim-centered. We don't want to focus on the glorification of crime. We really want to help to understand what causes crime and to give a voice to victims. But the sensational nature of this case, like with a lot of murders, really put a lot of attention on the murderer. So the challenge with this episode is to give a voice to the victim.
0: This case has received a lot of media attention over the years, having been featured on Dateline and 48 Hours. And as we dig into the episode, you're going to find out why. Like we mentioned before, this case is often referred to as the Dexter Killer. For those that don't know, Dexter is an American television series that aired on Showtime from 2006 to 2013. I'm still mad about the series finale. Don't get me started. It's set in Miami, and the series centers on Dexter Morgan, played by Michael C. Hall, who is a forensic technician specializing in bloodstain pattern analysis for the fictional Miami Metro Police Department. Dexter leads a secret parallel life as a vigilante serial killer, hunting down murderers who have slipped through the cracks of the justice system. The show's first season was derived from the novel Darkly Dreaming Dexter, written in 2004, by Jeff Lindsay.
1: Yeah, and I just want to hop in here. We are actually sitting in the studio today with a dog who is sleeping on the floor, and his name is Dexter.
0: And he says hello.
1: And he's actually named after the television series Mm. Dexter. Yes, I am also
0: a large fan, but not as big of a fan as uh, someone we're going to meet later in the episode.
1: So this case does not take place in Miami. It takes place in Edmonton, Alberta, which is nothing like Miami. The land where Edmonton is located is on what is known as Treaty 6 territory, and since time immemorial has been the home and the meeting place for a diverse range of Indigenous, Métis, and Inuit people. Edmonton is the capital city of the western prairie province of Alberta, Canada. The city has a population of about 930,000 people, making it Canada's fifth largest municipality. Alberta is often called Canada's Texas. Folks are quite conservative, and it's quite common to see lots of cowboy hats, denim, and pickup trucks. The economy has always been natural resource-driven, and is also rooted in agriculture. But overall, oil and gas rule the day in Alberta. Edmonton does tend to have a strong arts scene, and uh, the city itself tends to vote in a more left-leaning way. And of course, it is home to the NHL's storied hockey franchise, the Edmonton Oilers. Go Oilers. Edmonton does struggle, like most major cities, with crime and crime fueled by drug use. Alberta is considered to be a pretty wealthy province, but a lot of the crime in Alberta is blamed on the transient nature of oil workers. It's not uncommon for men from the oil patch to come down to Edmonton to blow paycheck on booze, coke, women, and bar fights. In 2008, Edmonton reported 40 homicides. That number has fluctuated since 2008 with a low of 27 murders in 2013, and a high of 53 murders in 2011. These numbers are actually quite high for a Canadian city. So that's Edmonton. So this case
0: revolves around the murder of a John Altinger, and we will get into that in a bit, but first we want to talk about a man named Gilles Tetrault and I'm probably butchering his name, and my French-Canadian mother will not be happy with me, but just bear with me. In the fall of 2008, Jill Tetrault was working as a computer contractor in Edmonton. He was a wiry, medium-billed, 36-year-old single guy living his best life in the city. Like many singles in the city, Jill's turned to online dating to find company and maybe a connection.
1: Yeah, and keep in mind, this was pre-Tinder and Bumble apps, so...
0: Yeah, so one of the websites he used was Plenty
1: of Fish. In the fall of 2008... Jills logged onto his Plenty of Fish account and found that he had a match, or whatever they call it on Plenty of Fish, a a catch, a hook. It was a hot blonde woman by the name of Sheena. They chatted for a bit, messaging back and forth through DMs on the site, and then Sheena asked Jills if he wanted to meet and maybe head out on a date. Jills agreed, and they decided to meet on the evening of October 3rd, 2008, Jills agreed to pick up Sheena at her apartment in the Mill Woods neighborhood. The two had planned to go for dinner and a movie. Classic. Now, before the date, there were a few red flags popping up. The first was that Jills was given directions to a garage with no address numbers.
0: No, that's a big no for me.
1: This garage was detached from a house. So the door to the garage was actually on the back laneway on the on the back side of the home. In photos of the garage, you can see the house behind it. It's very clear that the house and the garage are two separate buildings. However, in the middle of a dark night in October, this would not be something you would notice. So you would – if you walked up to the garage, you would – and somebody told you that it connected to the house. Yeah, you you might be like, "Yeah."
0: yeah, whatever. So, Jills was given direction to this garage, again, without a street address, and he was instructed to enter through the garage door, as this would be the easiest way to enter into Sheena's suite. I guess she told him she was living in some kind of, like, a guest suite or a basement suite type of deal. So, Jills got to the garage at about 7.15pm. Now, here's the second red flag. When he arrived at the garage, he noticed that the door was only partially opened, meaning he would have to crouch down and, like, swoop under it to enter. He also noticed that all the lights were off. So he's standing outside of a garage, like a random garage, in a laneway. You know, it's dark. It's 7.15 at night in October, so the sun is down. Mm-hmm. And he's in front of a dark, partially closed garage door. So picture
1: that for a moment. Super creepy. So Jills decides to go for it. He crouched down and entered the garage. Once inside, he felt a tap on his shoulder. Before he could react, he was put into a bear hug, and all of a sudden he was in a struggle to gain control. Jill said he was bewildered and thought someone was playing a joke on him, but when he turned around, he saw a larger man wearing a black and gold hockey mask. All of a sudden, I saw this man with a hockey mask on, he said, adding then he realized... This was no date. Jills was then pushed up against a wall and prodded with a stun baton or a stun gun. Jills feared the worst. He figured this guy was going to either rape him or murder him or both.
0: Yeah, so the stun baton turned blue and made a loud noise every time the attacker prodded Jills' body. Jill said it didn't really hurt. It felt like an electronic bug zapper, he said. I just gave him this look to say, hey, this thing's not really hurting me. Jills tried to run for an exit in the garage. That's when the attacker pulled out a handgun and ordered him to the ground. Get down on the ground with your head down, put your hands behind your back, said his attacker. Jills obeyed. The man put duct tape over his eyes. Jills, in that moment, remembered that he hadn't told anyone where he was going to be that night. This is when he decided to fight back. He got up, ripped the tape off of his eyes, and grabbed for the gun. That's when he realized the gun was not real. It was the best feeling I ever had in my life, he recalled. The pair continued to struggle in the garage. The attacker punched Jills in the side of the head. Jills realized that the more he let his attacker punch him, the more he could maneuver his way towards the exit. As they neared a door, Jills said he decided to turn around a little bit, and he felt his attacker grab hold of his light summer jacket. I thought to myself, It's time.
1: So Jills spun out of his jacket, so the, the attacker is holding onto his jacket, and Jills spins out of the jacket, rolled under the garage door, and stood up. And Jills, to this day, doesn't know why, but his legs, quote, wouldn't work. He fell face down in the gravel of the driveway. Now, I think this was like an adrenaline thing. Like, he hadn't, he wasn't drugged or anything. His legs just... Or maybe just like the stun gun. Maybe, or just up. absolute fear. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I started crawling, but obviously he came out of the garage after me. He grabbed my legs and started dragging me back to the garage. So Jill started to panic. How am I going to escape this time? But as soon as the attacker let go of Jills' legs to get himself back into the garage, Jills rolled out of the garage door yet again. I put all of my energy into my legs that I could, and I started running, he said. You would hope it would all end there that he would just get away. But things got a lot creepier and a lot worse. You see, Jills made it to the street where he thought he had found help. Here's what happened next. Jills would stumble
0: upon a couple who were walking their dog. He pleaded with Marissa Guarini and her boyfriend Trevor Hossinger for help as the attacker approached, still wearing the hockey mask. Marissa said that she saw Jills stumble down an alley and fall to the ground. She said he had a big welt on his face. He stood up and said, You have to help me. This guy is trying to rob me. And then I looked where he was pointing and there was a guy standing there in a mask, she said. At that point, I started to freak out. Trevor, the boyfriend, said the mask wasn't fully covering the man's face. But when he tried to take a closer look, the masked man readjusted it. Trevor said the man didn't say anything and walked back towards a garage and slipped behind a fence.
1: How creepy is that?
0: Yeah, ew. Trevor said that Jill's appeared to be injured and his clothes were torn. He looked at me and said, Can you help me? I'm being robbed. I just stood there and took another look at the attacker over by the garage. Again, the victim looked at me and said, Can you at least help me get to my car? Again, I looked at him and looked at the attacker,
1: assessed the situation, and just turned and walked away. Yeah. So there's a whole thing to unpack, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I put that out to listeners is what would you do in that situation?
0: Yeah, that's that's a tough one. I mean, like, I guess it depends on where you live, you know, like how yeah. sketchy the area you're in at the time is. Like, well, This
1: is a this is super weird to run into. Obviously. Yeah. And, you, and this guy is like not speaking and just creepily floating about with a hockey mask on. Yeah. So it is. In the defense of the couple of Hossinger and Guarini, it's worth noting that apparently there was a spree of muggings in the south side of Edmonton at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And they they had to do with a bit of a hoax, like a bit of a scam.
0: Yeah, they were afraid that they were getting scammed.
1: Exactly.
0: So Jills managed to get into his truck and drive off. When he got home, he went to check the Plenty of Fish dating profile for Sheena, but it was gone. He didn't report any of this to the Edmonton Police Service or to anyone as he felt a lot of shame and embarrassment for having been catfished.
1: So I'm just going to chime in here real quick. I know that we can hear this account and maybe want to blame Jill's for maybe making some dangerous choices. You know, there was the red flags of no address, going to a garage, the garage Mm -hmm. door is slightly open. It's pretty creepy. Mm -hmm. But... It is important to remember that we should be able to live in a society where when we get asked out on a date, our first response shouldn't be, hey, are you going to wear a hockey mask and try to kill me?
0: But sadly, I guess this is where we are at in society. So it would appear that Jules got lucky, but what he didn't know was that he had escaped from a well-planned murder. Because just one week later, the same thing would happen to another man and his name was John Altinger.
1: We are going to quote extensively from an article in the Edmonton Journal about John Altinger, who went by the nickname Johnny. Quote, It was a Commodore 64, a breakthrough piece of technology in 1982, that came with a bulky keyboard, floppy disk drive, and squat screen. At the time, Commodore aimed to put its 64 KB computers in every home, dubbing its product... The personal computer with professional power.
0: Altinger wanted to be among the first to have one. Even as a kid growing up in the infancy of the home computer age, he had a knack for computers and a genuine love for what they could do. His brother Gary was quoted as saying, "'Countless times he would sacrifice his own responsibilities to rescue me by word processing term papers, essays, and other important assignments while I was attending university.'" We were all very proud of Johnny's ability to help others much older than he was with his technical savvy. Gary Altinger was seven years older than his brother. As a child, Gary told his mother that he wanted a baby Johnny. So that's what Alfred Altinger named the boy.
1: So yeah, baby Johnny is like a reference to a doll or something like that, I think. Mm. So Johnny was born on a sunny April day in 1970 at Royal Alexandra Hospital in Edmonton. By the late 80s, Altinger was part of a computer-savvy group in the Vancouver area who used modems to connect to their computers around the city. Glenn Ritchie knew Altinger online for almost three years before they met in person. Both men were part of a local bulletin board system, or BBS, an early version of an online community. The community was small, friendly, and diverse. From their living rooms, Ritchie and Altinger picked up their rotary phones, dialed a number, and listen for a series of screeches and bleeps, the sounds of their computers trying to communicate. They placed their phone receivers on little pads on their modems. The modems would begin to exchange data. So this was like early TikTok for all of our Zoomers out there.
0: Not really, but yeah. (laughs) So from there, it was possible for computer users to chat with someone on the other side of town or make a move in one of the many role-playing games the friends played. Like the text-based fantasy Legend of the Red Dragon. There were modern meetups that might attract five people, maybe 50, to a pool hall, someone's apartment, or a movie theater. You wouldn't try doing that now. Who's coming? What's their motivation? It wasn't like that, you know, Richie says. After a while, people became like family. Because you're talking to the same people over and over again, you meet them, and it's just a non-issue people would have chatted via their computers for years before meeting in person. To those who knew him through his community, Altinger used the alias Ultra Magnus, a character from Transformers. Those who were really close to him knew him as John or Johnny, but the whole general modem population knew him as Ultra Magnus, or simply Magnus, says Sean Cameron, an old friend of Altinger.
1: Altinger eventually returned to Edmonton from British Columbia. He was tall, with wispy hair and glasses. He had a warm grin and gentle eyes. Like any 38-year-old, his life had ups and downs. He seemed to have found a good place in life by 2008. Altinger owned a tidy bachelor pad. Along one wall was a white leather couch, long enough for two adults to lie on. The apartment was a short drive to his work at Argus Machine, an oil field equipment manufacturer just south of Edmonton. He worked the night shift in a quality control setting, checking machinery and machine parts. As an adult, Altinger loved motorcycles almost as much as he loved computers as a kid. He owned two, a Honda 500cc and a Yamaha 1200cc. Altinger kept his motorcycle helmet and jacket at the ready. The bikes were his babies, it seemed. If he was going out of town, he'd carefully cover the touring bike, and at times he'd even have a friend come and babysit it.
0: Johnny chatted regularly with friends and acquaintances online. He looked for love on websites such as Plenty of Fish and Lava Life. While he didn't find a wife, the internet allowed the quiet Altinger a way to meet people. He ended up making some good friends. Deborah met Altinger on plentyoffish.com in 2006. She was a recently graduated registered nurse who, after a few phone calls, agreed to meet him for a coffee at Earl's Restaurant. Their conversation flowed easily. They were both of German heritage and loved the country's food. They found plenty to talk about. Deborah ultimately decided that they would make better friends than partners. They did continue to hang out, even as they each pursued others' love interests. When Altinger heard that Deborah's mother died, he insisted on driving across town to comfort her. He once brought her a homemade pumpkin pie and pestered her until she agreed to take a fast ride on the back of one of his motorcycles. He loved to get people to open their minds and think outside the box, Deborah stated. He was positive, upbeat, and he tried to get people to turn their negative thoughts to positive thoughts.
1: As Altinger approached his 40s, he developed an interest in spirituality and metaphysics. Deborah occasionally joined him at spiritual talks in the city. Sometimes they would walk out of the meeting laughing if the topics had ventured into weird territory, but still Altinger held firm beliefs. He believed in reincarnation. Quote, I think he sort of knew there was maybe something more to life than being here in this physical world. In the summer of 2008, Altinger reached the point where he was looking for a serious relationship. He wanted to find somebody he could share his life with. He tried to rekindle a romantic relationship with Deborah, but she told him they should just remain friends. Quote, I know that in my heart, John was looking for a girlfriend, she says.
0: So on October 10th, 2008, Johnny Altinger would meet someone on Plenty of Fish. So let's get into what we know about that after a quick break. And we are back. So, Johnny Altinger would connect with a woman named Jen on Plenty of Fish, and they would decide to meet in person. On October 10th, 2008, Jen would send Johnny details on where he could meet her. She provided no address or phone number. Instead, she gave him directions to a residential garage on the south side of Edmonton. Now Johnny would actually text these directions to a couple of friends so they would know where he was going.
1: He then hopped into his red Mazda 3 and headed out to meet his date. What Johnny didn't know was that he was being lured into a well-planned trap. The garage itself had been fitted out as a kill room by a disturbed person obsessed with the idea of killing someone. In the center of the garage was a heavy metal table, about the size of a pool table. The table was covered and surrounded by plastic sheets to catch blood spatter, just like in the TV show Dexter. But it seemed like there was just one last chance for Johnny to avoid this fate. Apparently, he arrived at the garage and realized there was no woman there and left.
0: Johnny would then call a friend, Dale Smith, and told him there was no woman at the garage. Johnny told him there was just a man with a replica gun who said he was making a movie. Less than an hour later, Dale Smith said he received an email from Johnny with a one-line message. She's home now. I'm heading over again. Hee hee. It is believed that Johnny entered the garage and the psychopath in the black and gold hockey mask was laying in wait for him.
1: Johnny would be hit on the head with a heavy copper pipe, stabbed to death. His limbs, bones, sinew and flesh were then cut up with heavy-duty blades and saws that are used by hunters to chop up big game. It is also speculated that Johnny's remains were played with after his death.
0: Do we know what that means?
1: Yeah, there's just some stuff out there on the interwebs that maybe the killer used his head in a puppet style. Johnny's remains would then be burned, placed in garbage bags, and dumped into a sewer.
0: Days later, on October 13th, the killer would use Johnny's keys to break into his apartment and email several of Johnny's friends from Johnny's personal computer and email account.
1: The email read, quote, I've met an extraordinary woman named Jen who has offered to take me on a nice, long, tropical vacation. We'll be staying in her winter home in Costa Rica. Phone number to follow soon. I won't be in town until December 10th, but I will be checking my email periodically.
0: All of his friends found this incredibly odd. Johnny wasn't a hot weather type of guy, and his emails generally had a jovial tone.
1: Yeah, apparently he used lots of emojis or. Well, smilies. he said
0: he he in the email that he sent earlier, so right, that's a the good text, example. Yeah, so, yeah. a letter of resignation was also emailed to Johnny's employer. It explained that he was leaving the country. His employer emailed back asking for an address to send his last check. This email went unanswered.
1: Yeah, and another odd thing was that uh, Johnny would have asked somebody to babysit his motorcycles if he was leaving town. Yeah, he wouldn't just leave them.
0: After many calls, texts, and emails to Johnny went unanswered, Johnny's friends jumped into action. They contacted police, but the police said they needed more evidence. Now, I mean, you and I have listened to a lot of true crime podcasts, and we've obviously researched a few cases ourselves. This is such a frustrating um, roadblock that a lot of people with missing loved ones run into, especially if it's an adult that's gone missing, is police will be like, "Uh, this person may have just left. Like, everything is pointing to this person just left and went on vacation with this woman. Yeah,
1: nobody knows their people better than friends and family. And so when outside law enforcement are like, it's no big deal, they'll come back. It's very frustrating.
0: Yeah, it's like if you ever know that something is definitely wrong. Fight, you know, fight tooth and nail for that person. Like, make sure the cops know this is super, super out of character for whomever.
1: Yeah, so check this out. Several days later, Johnny's friends broke into his apartment where they found his passport, suitcase, and shaving kit. It was clear to them that Johnny was not on vacation in Costa Rica.
0: The Edmonton Police Service would begin their investigation. And thanks to Johnny, they knew exactly where to start. If you recall, Johnny sent his friends a text message letting them know where he was going to be on the date. The police knew to start
1: at that garage. It turns out that the garage was recently rented out by an amateur wannabe filmmaker. This lead led Edmonton police officers to a residence in the nearby town of St. Albert, where they conducted a three-day search at a home in the Deer Ridge neighborhood.
0: Neighbors noted that it was odd to see Edmonton police and forensic specialists in their town. The Edmonton Police Service remained tight-lipped as they gathered their evidence, but on October 31st, 2008, they would make an arrest of a man. He was found in his parents' basement in Edmonton while he was sewing an Iron Man costume. Iron Man, the Marvel character. This man was 29-year-old Mark Andrew Twitchell.
1: There is a lot of information out there about Mark Twitchell. You can search it. Um, we would be remiss if we didn't spend some time explaining who he is, but we want to make sure that we don't glorify him or spend too much time talking about him.
0: Yeah, let's make it clear. We think he's a piece of shit.
1: Yeah, and we'll get into that as we go along. But here's what we know about him.
0: At the time of the murder, Mark Twitchell was an amateur filmmaker and sales associate living in St. Albert, Alberta. Mark was born on July 4th, 1979 in Edmonton, but it's believed that he spent a considerable amount of his life in the Midwest of the United States. He returned to Canada in the 1990s and enrolled in a film and TV program at the North Alberta Institute of Technology. He finished this program in 1999. At some point in the early 2000s, he returned to the U.S. where he got married
1: and then divorced. He then returned again to Alberta. In January of 2007, he married a woman named Jess. It's rumored that they met on... Plenty of fish.
0: Really popular for these people, hey?
1: Yeah, it was popular at the time. Actually, still popular. Yeah. Anyway, they had a daughter in 2008. So he was literally living with his wife and an eight-month-old baby at the time of the arrest. Mark would also have a series of sales jobs, including a paper company uh, and an alarm system company. Anyway, he was apparently really into cosplay. He had won a Halloween costume competition for a Transformer Bumblebee costume that he had made.
0: So this kind of explains that Iron Man costume he was making while he was arrested. This was something he did for funsies. Mark was also an avid Star Wars fan, and so he made his own Star Wars movie that he wrote, produced, directed, and uh, he used a green screen and local actors and crew. It was called... Star Wars, Secrets of the Rebellion.
1: Yeah, apparently it actually got some kind of like local media heat in Alberta. So he was a Star Wars uh, fan. He had a Star Wars Rebel Alliance tattoo on his left shoulder. He also had a vanity plate on his Pontiac Grand Am. (laughs) Sorry. That read DRK Jedi. So Dark Jedi or perhaps Dirk Jedi.
0: This guy sounds so cool. The bookshelves in Twitchell's St. Albert home contain books about Dexter, the television show, and the book series character, who's a serial killer, and another book entitled The Crime Scene, How Forensic Science Works. In 2008, he made a short film in the same garage he rented on the south side of Edmonton, where Johnny was murdered.
1: Yeah, the plot of this short eight-minute movie in in an Edmonton residential garage is about a man who is... Lured to a remote location on the promise of an internet date, the man is tied up and tortured to reveal his internet passcodes, then murdered. He made this short film just two weeks before he murdered Johnny and just one week before he attempted to murder Gilles.
0: So, he made the movie and I wonder if that's what inspired him. He's like, oh, I want to do this.
1: Well, that's apparently... Um, Part of the idea is that that's when his obsession kicked in Mm. to actually turn this uh, fiction into reality. But, I mean, those are just excuses.
0: Yeah. So let's move on from shitty George Lucas for a bit and talk about the overwhelming evidence against him.
1: So there is a lot of evidence. uh, So it's best we deliver it in kind of a bullet point form. Yeah.
0: Yeah, this guy, as obsessed as he was with Dexter, he made a pretty shitty killer.
1: Yeah, he, yeah. So the garage was tested with luminol revealing large patterns of blood spatter as well as blood pooling, despite it having been cleaned with bleach. This garage was, of course, rented by Twitchell.
0: Yeah, and Twitchell's Pontiac Grand Am had traces of blood in the trunk, and this blood would go on to match Johnny Altinger.
1: Yeah, various tools would be found, including the metal pipe used to beat Johnny, saws and knives were found that uh, were used to stab and dismember Johnny. They also had his blood. Uh, They all had Johnny's blood on them. Mm -hmm. Police also found the fake gun and a stun baton and the gold and black hockey mask. Also,
0: in Mark Twitchell's car, police found messages scribbled on yellow post-it notes that read, destroy wallet contents and ship eBay items and a reminder to make a clean sweep of the kill room.
1: Can you imagine? He wrote that, like, he might as well have made a shirt that said, I killed... Johnny Altinger.
0: (laughs) I know, it's, like, pathetic.
1: Another note found in his car on the front console depicted a simple map leading from St. Albert, where his home was, to the crossroad near Altinger's South Edmonton apartment. So, like, just
0: proof on proof on proof that he was connected to this guy.
1: It gets worse.
0: Twitchell was also in possession of Johnny's red Mazda 3. When questioned about this... He said he bought it off of a random stranger for
1: $40. Yeah, apparently he said that a stranger walked up to him and said, "Hey, you can have my Mazda 3, my brand new Mazda 3 for whatever you've got in your pocket." So he gave him 40 bucks, and then he tried to make a friend hide it in his friend's garage. Wow. And the friend had a ton of questions, right? And he's like, "No, don't ask me any questions, just hide the car." Sketchy. So police would also find evidence of a burn barrel pattern in the grass of Twitchell's parents' backyard.
0: So he's using mommy and daddy's house to get rid of a body, too?
1: Yeah. It it gets worse. He also ran a Facebook group devoted to the TV series Dexter. On that group, he would write long, elaborate posts about killing people. But most people on the group just assumed he was, like, a, a wildly creative fan of the show and he was just writing fiction.
0: Twitchell would also send an email out to his friends begging them not to talk to the police. He would claim that the police were just trying to set him up. On November 4th, Jills, the guy who got away, would see a news story about Johnny Altinger's death. He would then come forward with his own story.
1: So as if this all wasn't damning enough, like all of that evidence plus the witness of Jill, Mm -hmm. police would find his laptop and uh, they'd find it in the trunk of his car. Mm-hmm. And in it, there was like obviously deleted files. In the deleted files, there was a document titled SK Confessions. And it's assumed that that means serial killer confessions.
0: Yeah, so.
1: And it. But wait a sec. It was actually, as much as it was a diary, it was clear that he was trying to write a movie script.
0: Yeah, no, he even wrote it out. Like it looks like, a, you can find this on the internet. It's uh, very searchable. Uh, it's like in legitimate script format. I yeah, mean, you like and I work final in,
1: draft or whatever. Yeah,
0: you and I both work in the film industry, so we know what a script looks like. But it's yeah, it's totally script form. So he was killing people and writing a movie script about it. So that's just an overview of the the stack of evidence against him. So let's talk about the script found on his laptop.
1: So here's a bit of a description of the 42-page script found on Twitchell's computer. It starts off with this quote. This story is based on true events. The names and events were altered slightly to protect the guilty. This is the story of my progression into becoming a serial killer. The script goes on to call killing, quote, an exhilarating new hobby, and describes how he prepared for luring and killing his victims. The document, which reads like a diary, describes the purchase of a number of items that match items discovered by detectives a hockey mask, a hunter's game processing kit, a 45-gallon steel drum, a hunting knife. And this hunting knife he specifically describes as, quote, the kill knife.
0: There is also a description of how the author set up a kill room in the garage. The author describes posing as a woman on the internet to lure his victims. At first, the author thinks about luring married men, but then he decides a married man would be reported missing more quickly. Instead, the writer decides to target unmarried men in their late 30s and early 40s of average height and build.
1: The author then speaks about downloading an IP address blocker. Quote, I mean it would be rather silly of me to run the whole operation from my home computer without it. Just so that if any of my playmates... Gross. ...any of their disappearances were actually investigated there would be this electronic trail leading the police directly back to me in my little workshop of horrors.
0: Sorry, this guy is just so... Yeah. Lame. The document details a first encounter with a married man named Frank, who comes to the garage but manages to get away after fighting back.
1: So this would be Gilles Dittral.
0: Right. And uh, the document goes on to describe a meeting with a second man called Jim who was found through a free dating website. The script describes how Jim comes into the garage and how the author introduces himself as a local filmmaker named Harry, and he shows him a prop gun. The author tells Jim the woman he is meeting is running late, so he leaves and comes back 20 minutes later, and then leaves again. The author then contacts him on the dating site and offers to reschedule, but Jim offers to come back that night. Crouched, poised, I had a whole new plan, the author says. When Jim enters the garage, the author strikes him on the head several times with a pipe, then stabs him in the abdomen and the neck.
1: So what follows is an extremely disturbing and graphic depiction of how the author dismembered the body and put it in garbage bags. While he's cleaning up the garage, his wife in the script, Tess, like keep in mind I think his actual wife is named Jess. So this is how creative this guy is.
0: Or arrogant?
1: He is so arrogant. So Tess calls and asks him to pick up baby formula on the way home. So he backs Jim's Mazda into the garage and then leaves.
0: So he doesn't even change the car.
1: Doesn't change anything. I mean, anyway. Two days later, the author describes using the keys to let himself into Jim's apartment. He is able to get into Jim's Facebook, Messenger, and internet dating accounts uh, because the passwords were all set to auto-login. He sends an email to Jim's friends telling them that he is going away with a woman for two months. He also changes the status on Jim's Facebook profile.
0: So obviously with the overwhelming amount of evidence police were able to charge Twitchell with first-degree murder of Johnny Altinger and the attempted murder of Jills Titrell.
1: Upon his first interview with police, Twitchell would claim that he had never met Johnny and he had never posed as some woman named Jen. When presented with the wall of evidence against him, Twitchell changed his story. Twitchell admitted he was trying to lure men, but it wasn't to kill them. It was all part of a new entertainment concept involving making a movie and writing a book followed by an online component. The whole idea is to, quote, keep the audience down the rabbit hole, staying in the fantasy world as long as possible, end quote. The men would help him create an urban legend that would create buzz for his film, House of Cards, about a Dexter-like serial killer.
0: After luring his first victim, Jills, Twitchell decided terrifying Jills would be ridiculously effective in creating hype, he said. When Jills arrived, Twitchell rushed him. I used the stun baton mainly to scare him, he said.
1: So that's how he justifies terrifying Gilles, is that it was just to scare him and no big deal. So here's how he justifies his interaction with Johnny.
0: When Altinger arrived at the garage, Twitchell revealed his plan to him, but Altinger didn't like it. Altinger became angry when he learned the whole thing was a hoax. After the two exchanged insults, Twitchell turned his back on Altinger, he said. That's when he felt a blow to his back, Twitchell said. He grabbed a pipe and swung at Altinger. So he's alleging that Johnny actually hit him first. Attacked him, yeah. I kept hitting him in the head, Twitchell said, because he was pulling me forward. As the struggle continued, Twitchell swung harder and harder. A mangled mess of swings, he said. When Altinger, bleeding profusely, grabbed the pipe, Twitchell reached for his knife. When he saw his knife sticking in Altinger, he froze and staggered back, he said. Right. He pondered what to do next. So you're telling me that, like, you grabbed the knife and then in the next thing you just saw it sticking out of him? Like, it's like, that's always this, like, I blacked out. Yeah, I know. There was this war in my head between screaming out, call 911. And then, how bad does this look? Take a look around. Look what this place looks like, is what he thought in reference to the kill room he had
1: set up. Twitchell claims that after a quick haphazard cleanup, his wife called, asking him to pick up baby formula on his way home. So I just want to stop here. He is claiming self-defense and that it was all a marketing ploy gone wrong.
0: Yeah, for his new movie.
1: So what pisses me off about guys like this is how they try to control the narrative. Much like with Natsumi Kogawa, Mm -hmm. um, William Schneider said, yeah, we had agreed to have sex in a tent. like." We don't get to hear what Natsumi has to say about that. Yeah. He can say anything, Mm -hmm. right? And just like with with Johnny, this guy is trying to besmirch Johnny's name by saying Johnny attacked him. Mm -hmm. You know, these guys get to tell the story, but the victim does not. But luckily, the evidence and Johnny's decision to send his whereabouts to his friends points in the direction of the truth. And the truth is that Mark Twitchell killed Johnny Altinger in cold blood, premeditated murder.
0: But police still did not have Johnny's remains. Two years after the investigation began, Twitchell would provide police with a map. This map would lead to a sewer where Johnny Altinger's remains would be found. That sewer was just a block away from Mark Twitchell's parents' Edmonton home.
1: Yeah, there's actually a video online that you can watch of Twitchell being driven around in the back of a car, Mm -hmm. and the police are just... imploring him to do the right thing for Altinger's family and just the look on his face you can just see he's devoid and vacant of empathy and care for other human beings yeah
0: so let's get into the trial and where we are today after a quick break
1: and we are back so Due to the graphic nature of this case, a Canada-wide publication ban was put in place. But some U.S. and international media did take advantage of this, and many details of the case were leaked out. And even um, going through court documents uh, online, a lot of stuff is redacted. It was very hard to find verbatim details of the trial.
0: Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I've, I've seen his 42-page, I guess, manifesto, if you want to see it, and a lot of it is blacked out. Like anything really graphic in nature is completely blacked out. Um, And a lot of it is just ramblings of a fucking honestly crazy person. Mm -hmm. The trial would start on March 16th, 2011. The jury trial lasted seven weeks with 72 people slated to take the stand. Now, there was a bit of a hiccup at the start. The prosecutor wanted to try the attempted murder of Jill's Tetrolt in the same trial. But the judge disagreed, stating that it did not take place in the same transaction. So Jill's case would have to wait. In his testimony, Twitchell told the court that Altinger was enraged when he learned he wasn't meeting with a woman for a date. He claimed Altinger attacked him with a pipe and was stabbed during the altercation. Twitchell admitted he then dismembered Altinger's body and repeatedly lied to police. He also admitted he broke into Altinger's apartment and used the dead man's computer to send messages to his friends. As we know, Twitchell wrote about his experiences in the 42-page document that police found buried deep in the deleted file section of his laptop. This document, titled SK Confessions, was loosely based on his life. But during his testimony, Twitchell insisted parts of SK Confessions were fictionalized. His lawyer argued that Twitchell had changed parts of the document to make a better story. A story about an accidental killing would not have fit the genre Twitchell was trying to perfect, he said.
1: But during the trial, prosecutors called 46 witnesses to prove the document was true, save for minor discrepancies. At one point, Twitchell wrote about getting a speed ticket days after Altinger was killed. The Crown called a sheriff to testify that he had written the ticket on October 13, 2008. Twitchell also wrote about his attack on a man
0: named Jills Tetrolt, which Jills verified through his testimony. The case not only focused on the flurry of emails and writings that police tied to Twitchell, but also forensic evidence, such as a kill kit for processing wild game that was found in the garage, and lab tests found Altinger's blood on seven knives in that kill kit.
1: So, Twitchell said the game processing kit was in his garage, but it was only a prop for his movies. And his movies, he claims, were driven by his, quote, savant power.
0: What? What Yeah,
1: he's a genius. So, the prosecutor then asked, quote, So, because of your savant inspiration for your project, you just happen to have all the tools lying around to dismember a body? Twitchell would then reply, You can paint it as any kind of coincidence that you want. Twitchell, a
0: self-described psychopath with no ability to feel empathy, offered none to the family of his victim when given the chance to address the court. He paused for several seconds, said he had thought about making comments, but declined. I'll pass on that, Twitchell said.
1: So in April of 2011... Twitchell was found guilty of the first-degree murder of John Johnny Altinger. The jury deliberated for five hours before deciding that Twitchell lured Altinger off a dating website and butchered him.
0: Altinger's family gasped and cried after hearing the verdict. Then they smiled. Outside court, police officers who investigated the case said Twitchell would have killed again if they hadn't stopped him. We caught him on his first one, so he's a very poor serial killer, and thankfully he will never become a serial killer, homicide detective Bill Clark said. Notice how once he had chance here to apologize or say something, he chose not to. He doesn't care. It's all about
1: him. Twitchell would be sentenced to life in prison with no chance to apply for parole for 25 years. Uh, This is a very common sentence for first-degree murder in Canada. It's very rare that you won't get the opportunity for parole. Mm-hmm. So due to the long sentence, the Crown Prosecutor decided not to prosecute for the attempted murder of Gilles Dutral.
0: Which is bullshit in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I think there there's a thing that happens in Canadian um, law where they are also trying not to incur taxpayer cost. Mm-hmm. And so they've already got this guy, like with William Picton, they've already got this guy in. Um, why do they? The idea is that they don't want to pay for another trial.
0: Right. I think it's just such a slap in his face, though. I know. Like,
1: it should be. As a
0: victim, um, it's like, well, what? what about me?
1: And that's what a lot of people felt with the Picton trial, too. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, like with all narcissist cases, they just seem to never end. Because just one month later, Twitchell filed a handwritten notice of appeal which blamed media attention on his trial for influencing the jury. But, in February 2012, he withdrew his appeal.
1: Yeah, I bet you a lawyer didn't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. No.
0: However, the pain didn't stop there.
1: In May of 2013, a National Post investigation found that while Twitchell was prevented from watching the show Dexter while awaiting trial in the Edmonton Remand Center... He has not faced similar restrictions in federal prison. He has purchased a flat-screen television for his own private cell and now has access to over 60 cable TV channels, including one that broadcasts Dexter reruns and new episodes. Twitchell himself has stated in prison letters that he's watched every episode of the four Dexter seasons he missed since his arrest and first-degree murder conviction. In one letter... He still praises the show for its, quote, innovative writing.
0: I wonder if he praises that finale. Also, I wonder how Michael C. Hall feels about all of this. He's
1: actually quoted on it. He, he's mortified. I didn't add it to the script, but he, he's absolutely mortified that this happened.
0: Senior police officers and crime victims are demanding to know why he can have access to violent material closely linked to his heinous crimes. Staff Sergeant Bill Clark said it was baffling that prison authorities would allow the man known as the Dexter Killer to watch Dexter in prison.
1: So the hits keep coming because in 2017, it was revealed that Twitchell, the man who used a dating site to lure his victims, was now using a dating site for inmates called Canadian Inmate Connect. In his profile on Canadian Inmate Connect, Mark Twitchell writes, quote, I'm looking for an interesting, intelligent, open-minded, delightful, imperfect woman to relate to and share amusing observations with, as well as potentially a long weekend every few months if it gets there naturally.
0: What does that even mean?
1: Well, it means that he anticipates that he's going to have conjugal visits one day in Mm -hmm. federal prison. So, So this guy who used... Dexter, as an inspiration and websites to lure his victims, is now watching Dexter and using another dating website.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gross. I wonder, where is his wife?
1: Oh, they got divorced. She filed for divorce after uh, within the first year of his incarceration.
0: In the aftermath of the trial, Gilles Tétrole wrote a book about his experience titled The One Who Got Away. Johnny Altinger, who was just 38 years old when he died, left behind a loving mother, brother, nephews,
1: and many friends. Gary Altinger, Johnny's brother, said he and his wife have stress-related illnesses after the murder and that their children wake up from nightmares about monsters. Quote, It's impossible to be honest with them, knowing monsters do live among us. Johnny Altinger's mother told
0: the court in a victim impact statement she still calls her son on his cell phone two and a half years later after Twitchell killed him, just to hear his voice message. There were no words to describe the pain and feeling of horror one goes through, she said. There is no joy in my life. It has been ripped away from me. When she was interviewed outside the courtroom, she had this to say. People have asked me if I wish there was still the death penalty, and my answer is no. My wish is for the perpetrator of this unforgivable and horrific act to reflect on his actions and die a slow death every day of his life.
1: Before we wrap this episode, it's worth noting again that Johnny's actions that night saved lives. Because he took time to tell people where he was going, it led to the quick arrest of Mark Twitchell. Twitchell was a piece of shit with no regard for human life. Johnny Alchinger was a hero.
0: Well, that brings this episode to a close. Thank you again for joining us. We will have a new episode for you in two weeks' time. And we're working on a few cases right now that we're pretty excited to bring your way.
1: Yeah, today's case is a great reminder to let your loved ones know where you are and who you're hanging out with. And also to check in on your friends and family.
0: Exactly. Thank you again and stay safe,
1: everyone. Stay safe, you guys.